What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Each day, starting on Monday, February 18th, The Big Picture will be hosting six Oscar preview videos leading up to Sunday ceremony. Sean Fennessy hosts with a variety of other Ringer staffers covering everything you need to know about this season's Oscar race. You can watch these videos at youtube.com slash The Ringer or catch the highlights on The Ringer's Instagram and Twitter. David, Comedy Central announced that in its post-Daily Show slot, it is pursuing a politics-free show hosted by David Spade, late of Saturday Night Live. What I want to know is, who is your <laughs> ideal person to host a politics-free comedy show? Wow. Um, well, last time I saw David Spade, he was on Norm MacDonald's Netflix show, and I think Norm MacDonald should get a vote in this conversation, mm. uh, no matter what, just for sheer... I mean, you you can't turn away because of the, the power of his awkwardness. Um, yeah. If you want to... Okay. I love that also that it's a news story that Comedy Central is going apolitical for for the for for a half hour slot, <laughs> and there's like just this treasured time slot. Uh, I mean, it, I mean, obviously, if you if you're saying something that's non political or apolitical, I mean, you got to go like Jerry Seinfeld, right, or something even more like family. You could if, if you want to go the, the more like family friendly route, you could say Jeff Foxworthy springs to mind. Um, although he might be even too anodyne for that. Well, maybe you know maybe the best answer. Continuing down that road is the living legend Ron White. Oh wow! From the blue collar comedy tour. <laughs> yeah, give Tater Salad a thirty minute slot on Comedy Central and a desk every night. I would watch that. We are the Larry the Cable Guy and Jeff Foxworthy <laughs> of media podcasts. God help us. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Get her done. The Press Box is the media podcast where you're not allowed to tell us how many sheets and towels we should own. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. Three big topics for you today, David. First, we dive into the media fog surrounding Empire actor Jesse Smollett and his allegation that he was a victim of a hate crime in Chicago. Second, we'll talk about the controversy surrounding the cover of the new issue of Esquire. How's the old temple of long form getting along in 2019? And finally, an update on election 2020. How is your average liberal tweeter different than your average Iowa caucus goer? Plus the weekly notebook dump and, of course, the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But, David, let's start with Jesse Smollett. The facts, or at least alleged facts, are these. On January 29th, the Chicago Tribune reported the Empire star and performer had just left a Subway sandwich shop in Chicago's Streeterville neighborhood in the early morning hours and was walking to his apartment when two men walked up yelled slurs, hit him, and wrapped a rope around his neck while yelling, this is MAGA country. The Tribune adds a chemical, maybe bleach, was poured on him, police said. Here is Smollett talking to Robin Roberts on Good Morning America last week after a few doubts began to surface about his account. I'm pissed off. What is it that has you so angry? Is it the, the attackers? It's the attackers, it- but it's also the attacks. It's like, you know, at first it was a thing of like, listen, if I tell the truth, then that's it, because it's the truth. Mm -hmm. Then it became a thing of like, oh, how can you doubt that? Like, how do you you not believe that? It's the truth. And then it became a thing of like, oh, 
It's not necessarily that you don't believe that this is the truth. You don't even want to see the truth. Over the last few days, David, we learned that Chicago police are now investigating Smollett and whether he paid two brothers whom they brought in for questioning to actually stage the attack. TMZ has a report out that they even rehearsed the incident, et cetera, et cetera. So the first and most obvious lesson here, I think, is don't comment until all the facts become reasonably clear, which we are now going to sadly attempt to do anyway. But um, (laughs) here's my first takeaway from this. In the age of Trump, people have been dragging newspaper writers every day because of their wishy-washy language, not calling Trump a liar, right? Saying racially charged instead of just saying racist, right? Mm -hmm. This case is an argument that there are at least certain times, maybe not most times, maybe not all, certainly not all times, but sometimes when that old dispassionate newspaper ease is actually an effective language to use, right? Because coming in strong and early As tempting as it was when this seemed, you know, like an obvious heinous hate crime turned out, obviously now with with hindsight, not be the right move. What do you make of that? I think that that the, you know, media criticism that's come out of the reaction of this piece or this story has, uh, you know, sort of conflated the straightforward reportage that that, you know, obviously this is it's a story that needed to be covered and, and the and the immediate reactions taking everything at face value and i think that it's a tough situation obviously this is a really it's a it's a it's a wild story i mean but but i don't think you know obviously covering this subject uh as it happens is not problematic as long as like you said there's you know there's a sort of divide i mean you're not taking everything at face value you're reporting what is provable as fact right yeah i mean i looked up the chicago tribune stories about the incident which started i believe on january 30th and just read them in order and if you had done nothing but consume that your local newspaper in chicago tribune's case however uh lessened by various forces You know, you got accounts like Chicago police detectives reviewed hundreds of hours of footage but did not gain any leads, Um, that they found that there was no footage of the attack. There was a pretty cautious column by a woman named Darlene Glanton who said we should – she did say we should all consider Smollett the victim of a horrible hate crime but also was very – cautious about ascribing too much to it at that early stage. And then, of course, as the investigation goes around, it really was just normal reporting, right? And, you know, I guess the other question of this that sort of came out was when we say the media went all in on this story or or when we say conservative critics say the media went all in this story, what media are we talking about, right? What does that mean in 2019? On the one hand, you had CNN's Brian Stelter say, look, bona fide reporters were pretty careful with the story. And it was this constellation of celebrities and Twitter people that were going in. For example, here is the actress Ellen Page uh, talking to Stephen Colbert. We have a media that's barely talking about it. We have a media that's saying it's a debate whether or not what just happened to Jesse Smollett is a hate crime. It's absurd. This isn't a debate. I agree. I agree. What's interesting you notice about that, David, is Paige is saying that the media isn't going far enough, right? She's mm-hmm. criticizing the media for being way too cautious at that early stage. Of course, so that's one opinion. 
that it's mostly celebrities and sort of Twitter types. The other opinion is, no, 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 reporters did fall for it. Um, I clicked a Breitbart link yesterday, heaven help me, to see what one of their writers, John Nolte, was was sort of gleefully mm-hmm. uh, saying. And you know what's funny? I would say like the vast majority of tweets about this by the legit press were like people who clearly glanced at the headline or maybe the first paragraph of the story and said, oh, this is awful, right? This is awful and hateful and we must, as a society, must do better. So I guess the other question is, one is, what does media mean in 2019? And the other is, Mm -hmm. if you are doing kind of a quick glancing blow on the news, which is what a lot of people on Twitter do, right? you know, is that really a crisis of American journalism when you're essentially passing a headline around like that? I mean, I actually don't know. And, you know, clearly I'd rather people not pass around a false headline. But what we, the structure that the media is made up of right now is people read stuff and then they tweet about it, right? And I don't actually know that we've really hit crisis stage yet when most of the examples you find is stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I know the answer either. I think that that it's not clear cut. I think that it's it's easy. I mean, it's you can make the case. Uh, I mean, it's easy to, to make the argument that that, you know, passing along a headline on, on Twitter and, and uh, you know, attaching a, a, a cursory comment to it, even if it's, uh, you know, even, even if it, it takes everything at face value or, or comes from any, an ideological slant. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I mean, Twitter, we've we've had we've discussed journalists on Twitter many times before. Um, and, and certainly there's, there is a place, uh, you know, for, for people to be themselves on Twitter, to be humans on Twitter and not abide by all the same, um, you know, rules and ethics that, that guide their, their traditional printed work. But at the same time, you know, Twitter was how everybody was learning about this story, right? I mean, people that weren't sure. picking up the Chicago paper, uh, were finding out about it via Twitter and they were finding out about it Almost across the board, uh, they were seeing the story for the first time couched within a tweet with someone's uh, with you know someone's commentary above it. So um, you know that, that it is an interesting question when you are when you are actively participating in the dispersal of news. Um, you know, does your point of view matter? Now, listen, all of the in all well, of this, it well, has, it's really do you have to vouch for the news, right? If you're right. just sort of passing around a headline. From T- it was TMZ, right, was an early report on this too, you mm-hmm. know, and sort of an early vector of this. It's like the way, the way the media has always been constructed is you have a class of people who read stuff, who don't report, right, are prisoners of the facts that they read and then right. weigh in on it. Now that's just a much bigger class of people. And they're often not writing about it in a way that they're engaging with it and maybe would have read some details of the story and say, geez, does this really sound – Likely, does this sound real? But mm-hmm. essentially, read a headline and kind of, essentially, as you say, are distributing it with like, you know, a whip topping of opinion on top. Yeah, I mean, for all of this, it has to be said that this story is so wild that that even I mean, to report on it as skeptically as possible, it's not ridiculous to have gotten it wrong. It wouldn't be ridiculous to have read the story and to have gotten and and to have assumed that everything in there was true because. This this was such an elaborate scheme, if in fact it was, it's such an unlikely scheme, you know, situation that that I don't think it's it's incumbent necessarily on anyone to assume everything they're reading is 
is completely untrue, right? I mean, even if you're even even if you know skepticism aside, I think that that it's understandable why one would get this wrong. But you're right; it's the degree to which one engages before they comment. Mm-hmm. So that information was there. I mean, I can tell you when I first read the story, I was skeptical, and not because there's parts of it that are that are that are likely right i mean there's parts of it that are that are that are utterly believable and and i think for a lot of people some of that believability is because a story like this probably deliberately plays to you know sort of the ideological angst of a lot of people right now but the story but the details of the story even from the start did seem really really just too good to be true i guess good's not the right word um it just seemed so over the top that this would have been a, a random crime with all this, you know, all of this preparation at the same time that that he would have. I don't. I mean that. I mean even the two o'clock subway sandwich run. The whole thing just seemed a little bit put together. I got, but and and I did have a gl- a moment where I thought about that, and then immediately I I started messing around on the internet and realized that I wasn't alone in thinking this. But everybody else I saw who thought this were um, coming from the other ideological side of the spectrum. Uh, which is, you know, sort of the the alt right broadly defined, who would have been skeptical about this, even if it were utterly true, right? Mm-hmm. To cast doubt on it for for ideological purposes, and and I, and you know, this is one of those cases where they they got it right, although I'm not sure that they were operating in good faith on the subject either. <laughs> You're not sure the um, from the people who brought you, you know, there really wasn't a racial slur written on LeBron James's house in L.A. Exactly, right? yeah. So. I've got a question jumping off of this, and I saw a few people wrestling with this on Twitter, which is, okay, let's say you are the hypothetical David Shoemaker-like person. Um, you feel that Trump and his allies have cl- created a climate of hate or, or or strengthened a climate of hate in this country, right? Mm-hmm. You read a story like this, and something strikes you as off about it, but you're not somebody who's going to dive into it deeply and report about it do you air your skepticism on twitter well that's the trouble yeah i mean what do you do because that's the question i mean ideally you'd say well of course you know do it but like and we've seen people do this right sometimes they've come up and they've they've turned out to have been right right there were people that uh cast out on the rolling stone jackie story right which eventually uh-huh. fell apart under scrutiny people on not people reporters the washington post who also did it but people on on Twitter blogging about it at an early stage. But what do you do? Like, what's your, you know, what is your, res- I don't know if responsibility is the right word, but what's your move there? Well, I mean, it's the easy, I mean, the easy answer would be to not say anything for the same reasons that we, you know, would argue probably shouldn't editorialize without knowing all the facts to begin with. I think what you saw with the Jackie story and some of the, and some other examples were people cautiously, very cautiously, um, taking issue with some of the journalistic practice in that piece um, without, you know, and not um, and avoiding uh, addressing the subject mm-hmm. in any sort of direct way, at least until more facts came out. And in this story, it was, that's actually hard to do because the journalism, like you said, was mostly not problematic. It's the, the source itself was the, was, you know, the, the problem. Um so I'm not quite sure what the, I mean, it's really hard. It, it's something that I've wrestled with just trying to, at the time, but also just to, in preparation for this podcast, I'm not quite sure w- what the move is uh, other than like, 
you know, I mean, personally discussing it with people, I'm not, I don't know what, with the, with, if, even if, even if I were 99% sure that this had been a fraud from the start, I'm not, I'm not sure that I would have, you know, gone, gone, gone public with it because I'm not, I don't know really what the upside is. No, well, and also like, look, if you go public with, with doubts like that, then you are discouraging people from coming forward to report hate crimes, right? Exactly. We've talked, we've had those versions of this discussion with Me Too, mm-hmm. right? If you go inside, this is not, this is bullshit. You were doing that. I mean, I guess the best answer is <laughs> privately discuss it with your colleagues and then say, look, if this is yep. really, this is something we should invest some reporting muscle in. If we don't, if we don't think this adds up, then we should, add, you know, invest actual reporting muscle in figuring this out. Right. Or do doing something about that. And again, that's going to be a fairly small percentage of the journalistic world. But that seems like the only logical place to stand. I don't know what else you would do. You know, uh, I don't know how she can really advance a conversation. This is also a, a particular story that deliberately or no was created in such a way that it played specifically to celebrity media you know the morning talk shows the tmz that sort of thing his colleagues at fox right on empire right People yeah like exactly and, and celebrity in general and also in twitter as we've discussed yeah i'm not sure if the if if the you know first reaction i mean there, there's certainly going to be more interest from like just to name a, an outlet from like new york times reporters commenting on it on twitter than the, then there will be you know uh, editorial, you know, an editorial decree to go go wall to wall with investigating the story from the from the newsroom. You know, I mean, it, uh, this is a uh, a local story with national, you know, with with, with national uh, repercussions because of his relative celebrity. But it's not, um, you know, it's it, there's it's just it's just an, it's a story that it's gonna. That's going to make more no- noise and and kind of spill out more quickly in um, the non straightforwardly journalistic quarters of the internet than it is you know the traditional ones and mm-hmm. and so it's 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 tough for the facts to keep up with the um, to keep up with the reaction to it you know I mean from what Ellen and like you, we played the Ellen Page quote I mean she was wrong but she was also right I mean what supposedly happened was indeed a hate crime right I mean she was commenting on what she believed to be true and it was a hate crime it was just looks to be a fake one yeah. so I mean it's it's sort of it's 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 hard to to kind of cast particular aspersions at people who are reacting to things that they believe to be true and I think in the end we end up with this conversation about journalistic ethics you know or like what the role of the news media is in sort of like snuffing out a fire before it explodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just think, like I said earlier, I would love it if people sort of commented less on stuff like this as it, as it sort of trailed across the wires. But I don't think, I just think right now journalism is set up essentially to be a giant wire service, right? Like everything mm-hmm. from something really serious like this to Florida man does X, right? And it's a picture like of, you know, somebody in jail in Florida for doing a bizarre crime and for people to then just weigh in on all these things. And that's Mm -hmm. just seemingly what people do all day is weigh in on stuff they see like that. And um, And race to weigh in on it too. Yes. I I don't know, like structurally, you could say, don't do that anymore. Uh, you know, take five minutes, take a day, take a week. If it, if it, if it, it read the read, actually read the story. And if it feels a little weird, 
back off. Like I, that's all great advice. I just don't know structurally how that would work in journalism right yeah. now. By the way, my, my other theory of all journalism is there are no new journalism scandals. There are only old journalism scandals that have been tweaked slightly. Yes. And this just strikes me as a relative of, remember every time there's some kind of breaking story or, uh, you know, terrorist attack or whatever, and there's crap news put on Twitter and everybody reacts to it, uh, inf- including some of our conservative friends, right? Like, oh, it was a it was a Middle Eastern man who carried this out. And then it turns out it wasn't. Meanwhile, there were 19 blog items written in f- 10 Fox News segments, right? Yeah. That that is that is an old problem. And mm-hmm. that problem is not is this is the same problem. <laughs> it's just it just has the patina of Trump and race and hate. And and celebrity and everything else on it. But to me, this is just exactly the same thing we deal with in various iterations. Yeah, I mean, certainly this was a, if it was contrived, it was contrived to appeal to a very specific audience. That said, the reaction to it, the touchdown dancing, the everything else that's coming from the the, the conservative side is, is, no, is no more pristine somehow just because, uh, you know, this turned out to be untrue. Uh, or at least as it looks to be. Um, I mean, denouncing a hate crime is not a problem. I mean, it's not a liberal or shouldn't be a liberal <laughs> position, right? I mean, the yeah. fact that it's even a question is it is a, I think a, a symptom of more problems than anything we're dealing with in this. And the and the as terrible as this situation is from many different perspectives, if it turns out that it's that it just didn't happen. I'm not quite sure who has like standing to be aggrieved with the possible exception of the president because he was, you know, his. Because <laughs> he was tricked into expressing concern. Yeah, but he, I mean, and also just the story. I mean, that the, the story was that they were, you know, that the attackers had some right. said, make America great again or whatever they, you know, whatever the story was. But, you know, let's not worry too much about President Trump. He's got a platform to defend himself and has shown no, no, you know, hesitation in doing so in the past. If your agreement is that, that it looked like, you know, a hate crime existed and that it was is problematic for your like arch counterintuitive cause, then, uh, you know, that's on you. All right, David, now it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. I have a tweet for you from the highly reliable media entity, The Hill, uh, David, <laughs> which Go read... On. U.S. drops to eighth place on best countries list, which is just I love that. Speaking of stuff that just gets passed around. Right. I mean, right. what what list like what? <laughs> but OK, U.S. drops to eighth place on best countries list. It was an overworked Twitter joke to say the U.S. is now in danger of missing the playoffs. Uh, thanks to Pete Blackburn, Jake and Blue Shirts Breakaway for that one. A scoop in The Washington Post last week, David. Uh told us that President Trump has installed a $50,000 room-sized golf simulator in the White House. Yes. Um, it was an overworked Twitter joke to say Trump is the first gamer president. <laughs> that was self-reported by our pal Chris Sullentrop. By the way, I was thinking about this, and, and I say this sitting in the Ringers podcast studio in L.A. right now, next to a cardboard, life-size cardboard cutout of white men can't jump. Uh, from the movie, but the room size golf simulator, even a little too much for the ringer, right? <laughs> we sort of work in a Dave and Buster's here, and yeah. even that, it's just like there's just a, a, there's a golden tee on the lot somewhere. There's a golden tee, but even the the, the room size golf simulator, I think even even too much for us. Wasn't it reported in that story too that he hadn't used it at all? 
that it was that it was just or, or do we believe that to not be true? Was it sort of like the no, I didn't commit that crime. I have committed crimes in the past that no one knows about. <laughs> yeah, I could see him just kind of not getting around to that. It's not like he yeah. hasn't spent time at the golf course either, right? This right. was this was like during the shutdown. He kind of couldn't leave Washington, right? So he had to solve a problem. Like, how am I going to get some golf in? The fifty thousand dollar golf room size golf setup doesn't have an omelet station, so I guess that's a problem. <laughs> Finally, David, the big news last Thursday in uh, media slash. Uh, local news New York world was that Amazon is no longer building its headquarters in Long Island City. Yeah, wow. A lot of action here. It was never a Twitter joke to say why I'm leaving New York by Jeff Bezos. Uh, in <laughs> fact, there was a whole item in New York Mag's website about that uh, overworked Twitter joke. Also, Bezos to New York dropped dead. Uh, that was flagged <laughs> in advance by our pal Rafe Bartholomew, by the way. Mm-hmm. Predicted that was coming and boy did it. And finally, I'll give you this, Amazon. Telling people you're going to Queens and then bailing is one thing New Yorkers can relate to. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks to Skirk Rambus, Jeff Heckelman, Maxine Builder, Mr. Bones, and Tom Fountain for those. All right, Dave, before we talk Esquire, let's pause for a quick break. Clean up your remote control clutter with Control Center by Cavo. Control Center simplifies your home theater so you can control everything connected to your TV with one easy-to-use remote with voice control. Plug in your streamer, sound system, cable, or satellite, even your game console, and Control Center does it all. Don't waste time fiddling with different remotes or weeding through messy search results to get the content you want. One universal voice remote controls it all, so just say what you want to watch and let Control Center handle the rest. In fact, you can enjoy every second of couch time and easily switch between content without moving a muscle. Let Control Center take your at-home entertainment experience from stressful to simple and enjoy what you want, when you want it, with the shop now and get 40% off Control Center with promo code PRESSBOX. That's $59.95. 40% off the regular pricing of $99.95. Service plan required. First 45 days free. Control Center is available at caavo.com and Best Buy. Control Center by Cavo. One remote that does it all. David, if you're doing a cover story on a normal American teenager, it might be a problem when your teenager looks exactly like the guy in the Prada ad a few pages after the cover. <laughs> if you missed it, for its March cover, Esquire decided to do one of those normal person profiles and picked a high school senior named Ryan Morgan, who lives in a very red county in West Bend, Wisconsin. The cover lines read, an American boy, what it's like to grow up white, middle class, and male in the era of social media school shootings. Toxic masculinity, Me Too, and a divided country. People on Twitter were mad at Esquire for having this guy stand in for for the more diverse, more liberal Generation Z, for going on another Trump country safari, and for telling non-white people that this, this guy, is your sort of typical teenage existence in America. Here's my first take. At some level, isn't this just like a basic magazining failure? Mm-hmm. Um, the editor's note by Jay Fielden. And by the way, if in, in our era of shrinking pages, you should definitely do a full page editor's note. That is a valuable use of space in a magazine. Uh, the editor's note by Jay Fielden says that in fact, the magazine was going to do uh, black LGBTQ and female versions of this story, but mm-hmm. it chose to put this one first or this one wound up coming in first, however it worked. But if you're the editor of Esquire, 
and you are truly doing a four plus story package, don't you do that one? Don't you do one of the other ones first? And yeah. it is in it, in fact, a better magazine cover if you say an American boy, girl, slash, et cetera, and have a picture of somebody who is not a white teenager. Yes. Isn't that isn't, yeah. that, isn't that just like the uh, isn't that the I mean we're not we're not talking about you know George Lois in the '60s here right I mean that just yeah. seems like the, that seems like the the pretty obvious move if you want your magazine to get attention. Yeah, setting aside the um, widespread uh, critique that this was a really bizarre look for Black History Month. Um, yes, and that and that the your suggestion would have presumably quelled some of that. Uh, if not all of it. Yeah, even in a vacuum, it would have made a lot more sense. It would have been a, a, a much stronger, you know, move to do one of those other ones first. And even if you were intent on doing this one first for whatever reason, even if it's something is, you know, blase is this is the piece that was done and through, you know, co- the copy desk first or whatever. Um, he, it's not just that he didn't get to the he 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 didn't say anything about there being other pieces in the series until paragraph the end of paragraph seven of this edit of this editor's letter, and you're relying on your readership to read your editor's letter to understand mm-hmm. that. I mean, it's a messaging problem, right? I mean, it, it it if if you're mad that people don't get the point of a multi part series when you launch it, that's your fault, right? I mean, and this and it's not this is not a Specific, this is not a, a, a critique specific to this piece. Every journalistic outlet, you know, it, it has been too far in the weeds or uh, more colloquially too far up their asses to, to see what to I mean, to, to have the same point of view that the reader is, is presumed to, have to see. Right. We expect a lot of our readers to somehow magically having, you know, magically go back in time and sit in our editorial meetings to understand why we're publishing these things half the time. Yeah. And. You and and most time, most of the time, you get it right. Most of the time, you project the right thing with the headline, with the you know, with, with the with an editor's note, with you know, just the general position, with the with the artwork, you know, whatever else. But it's not un- uncommon to just get it wrong. You know, even successful pieces are probably frequently read in a way that the editorial team didn't necessarily expect or intend. Yeah. But this is just. But to but to be for 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 him to have been out there. And listen, the, the, all of the all, all of the the critique of this piece, you know, from a you know a racial point of view, was not helped <laughs> by the fact that photos of Fielden were floating around Twitter as just like the paragon of white privilege. Immediately upon the, the, the you know the, the the criticism of the story occurring, um, but yeah, I mean, you have to you have to be able to you have to be able to project that better. It's a really simple thing. It's, it's not it's not loaded. And if you're out there defending your piece, you know, online with with guns ablazing as he was or he, as he seemed to be, you know, you can take a second. And be like, we could have done a better job of this. Yeah, I mean, I just think if if you're a magazine that are packaging the story is kind of the big part of the job, right? Yeah, you get a you get credit when you have a great cover. So if you have a cr- a cover that sort of leads. Uh, everybody astray. You also have to take the take the L for that one. The um, it's interesting because the magazine historical marker here is Susan Orlean's 1992 cover story in Esquire called "The American Man, Age 10. Mm-hmm. and she was asked to write a profile of Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, and she said, "No, <laughs> I won't do that, but I will write about a quote normal American boy, as in this case, a normal." white middle-class American boy. And 
what was interesting to me is reading, going back and rereading her piece and rereading Jennifer Percy's piece in this issue of Esquire, is that the Percy piece feels like it's really just getting started. Um, I like parts of it. I just feel if you want the full sweep of what it is to be this guy, this kid, um, you really need to hang around with him for a long time or mm-hmm. sort of drop in and out over a period of months, you know, almost do the full William Finnegan cold new world treatment because yeah. it just feels like, you know, you want to see him sort of change. You want to see him sort of move through time in the Trump era. And this just feels like a very, very glancing blow that is sort of standing in for here's what this guy's life is like. Right. And again, I understand magazine deadlines, you know, the time and money everybody has. Now. I totally, I, I, I get all that, but it just, it didn't feel to me. It felt like it wanted to be a grand statement by the life of a, about the life of a quote unquote normal American. And it sort of got halfway there. Yeah. And I, again, I think that's an editorial, I mean, that, that, that's an editorial issue, right? I mean, the, the piece was, was well written. Um, and we should say that Jennifer Percy is a fantastic writer who's won numerous awards and, and, uh, and, you know, has been relatively quiet through this whole thing, except to say that she did not have that, you know, that, the that the packaging, that, you know, that had the titling of the story and the, and the cover was, she was not involved with any of that and sort of disagreed with the presentation. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, this feels sort of like a story that sounded good at the pitch meeting and, uh, and that the editorial side was kind of blind to the fact that it didn't actually achieve what they all kind of thought it was achieving. Can we talk a little bit about Esquire in 2019, which I think <laughs> oh, is kind of a fascinating subject? So I ha- I picked up the issue. I bought the issue. Um, as I am I am not judging a magazine by its cover. I am uh, judging it by the write-up of its weekend bag, uh, a man's ideal weekend bag on page 23. No, I'm just kidding. Um, one, it's always kind of amazed me that so – relatively little attention was paid to the day Esquire died in 2016 uh, when David Granger was removed as editor that people seem to pay way much more attention to the day the new Republic died like a year and a half earlier. Mm -hmm. Like you had this thing that was regarded as the Valhalla of long form and Chris Jones and Tom Juneau and Scott Robb and Johnny Trichson, all those guys. These are, these are the elect, right? These are the guys and then it just kind of all went away. Most of those writers scattered to the winds, and it was kind of everybody was kind of this giant collective shrug, mm-hmm. which is which is interesting and probably says something about long form that we can get to another time. Um, I looked through Esquire, a couple of interesting observations. One is the old Esquire's problem, which also would have played terribly in 2019. What is it? It had this horny hetero. <laughs> Hugh Hefner view of sexuality, right? Yeah. Oh, women yeah. we love. That notorious column about women being bad at sex. All that stuff is gone. Like I mean, or I'd say I'd say 99% gone. Uh they have they have happily fumigated the place of that old vibe, which I appreciate it. Number 2, there's a piece by Dwight Garner in here and if any and to me that's just fabulous right and i will read anything by dwight garner so i'm happy happy that he has a regular presence here and he actually he refers to 
he's writing about white male apology culture, and he refers to American men of the honky persuasion. So we needed, <laughs> we needed more thinking like that when we designed the cover of Esquire. The other thing, David, is I didn't realize how much I'd missed the language of a glossy men's magazine. Yeah. You know that, you know that voice I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. I think when you and I were living in New York in our early 20s and reading it, I always thought, you know, I'm just too young. But someday I'm going to kind of, you know, go into the cocoon and molt and come out and I'm going to be this guy, this guy who <laughs> cooks, right? You know, who can who can wake up yeah. on a Saturday morning and whip up that perfect omelet and has a has a weekend bag and, you know, has a watch, all this stuff, <laughs> right? Has a watch, And yes. here I am and I'm, exactly. I just now have realized, and I say this wearing a, you know, a shirt that needs to be ironed as I do this podcast, I'm never going to be that guy. I no. just... And I, now I read this and I'm like, why did I ever think that? How did I ever think I'd ever get there? Culturally. Yeah, the great the greatest trick all those magazines ever pulled was convincing you that they weren't aspirational. They were there that was actually somebody's life. Uh there's a piece in here about uh traveling to Jamaica, climbing up into the blue mountains on snaky roads in an old land cruiser. You see the city of Kingston shrinking to your left. To your right, tree roots are at eye level. Punching through walls of dirt, right? That that sounds like a men's magazine, does it not? The, oh, yeah. Um, the weekend bag thing I mentioned. There's a, there's a piece about recipes. Um, there's just this language of, you know, sort of, you know, being a guy. How do you – how does that – is it weird to you that that – I guess I don't even – forget whether this works in 2019 or not. Is it weird to you that that was ever a language that that – this was that it was sort of a Bible of how to be a man uh, encased in a glossy package. Am I surprised that it ever existed? Yeah, that it was just that that was ever a thing. Now, looking back on it, I mean, look, I thought it made perfect sense at the time. But now looking yeah. back, I'm like, wait, that really happened? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not that I guess to me, it's not that shocking because your competition on the newsstands. All, I mean, so much of it is is, you know, f- kind of functional. Is it, you know, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of, you know, instructional or, or very or, or magazines with a very, very specific audience. Right. And to a certain extent, you have to you have to you have to create your own your own identity in, in doing so, create your own audience. Obviously, that, you know, Esquire was the sort of men's magazine you know, Esquire and its the other magazines of its ilk. Um, it, was, it was sort of wild that that you know they existed as a block. Um, but you know, I mean, it's it, we're not that far removed from like every website having a really specific voice, even if it had multiple writers, and you know, or, or at least every blog. And uh, it's I guess it's just sort of amazing that Esquire was able to continue for such a long time. Um, with the level of, of, you know, undeniable talent they had there and the number of great stories they produced while sort of maintaining that, that, that uniform, uh, you know, voice, what I don't even know how you define it. It's like the, the, the culture, the culture dude or the cultured bro or something, but it's, it, it, it is, it is a sort of spectacular achievement in a weird way. I, looking back at the Susan Orlean cover, the line above, uh, the words Esquire are Lupica's 93 predictions. So that was- <laughs> Just a, just a little time capsule there. All right, David, let's get on to topic number three, 2020 and the election and what we've learned in the last couple of days. First of all, I think we have our first bona fide dumb controversy of the 2020 presidential campaign. Now, you might all think right. all of it is dumb. You might think the a lot of parts of the Elizabeth Warren Native American stuff is really dumb. No, no, no. <laughs> we, we've now hit real dumb. 
California Senator Kamala Harris, who, of course, is running for the Democratic nomination, uh, this week tried on a jacket on the campaign trail and Brit Hume got mad. Uh, Harris was in Columbia, South Carolina, when a reporter suggested she try on a jacket at a shop called Styled by Naida. Uh, Britt Hume, who is, of course, works for Fox News, tweeted, this is just embarrassing. Uh, so now journalists are going shopping with Harris, helping pick out clothes and then putting out glowing tweets about it. <laughs> does any does anybody grumble electronically quite like Britt Hume, David? Did you did you think grumbling was possible in Twitter form? No, but it's, it's impossible. It I was going to I was going to comment on you reading it in his voice, but I, then I realized there's no other way to read it. So, yeah, you, I think you got that right. <laughs> Uh, as it turned out, the owner of the store had uh, once lived in poverty, and uh, Harris said these are incredible stories of women who were in foster care, who understood what it meant at a very early age to struggle, but who also had dreams about what they could be. So I guess you could also read the uh, read the boutique story as a triumph of capitalism, too. There you go. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up to you <laughs> is something I read in a couple of pieces this week, which is the sense that the conversation we're having on Twitter about the 2020 Democratic nomination is mm -hmm. very different from the convo that actual voters in the early primary and caucus states are having. Yeah. Piece by the New York Times as Ace Ted Herndon said in interviews over the last month with about three dozen Democratic voters, almost all of them expressed far more interest in Elizabeth Warren's policy ideas than her ancestry and said they were exhausted or uninterested by the storyline. They described it as overblown, et cetera, et cetera. Also in uh, Dave Weigel's very good and latest edition of the trailer newsletter, he says, if any theme has emerged, it's that the Democratic electorate showing up to meet its candidates is far less ideological and skeptical than the one that lives on social media. Uh, some days, the gulf between the discussion on Twitter and the discussion at campaign events is a mile wide. He points out that Kirsten Gillibrand has only gotten one uh, question about her role in encouraging Al Franken to resign. Kamala Harris has received no questions about her criminal justice record. And Cory Booker has received no questions uh, about his vote against non-biting legislative language to crack down on the pharmaceutical industry. So it sort of brings up an interesting question to me, which is what what is the conversation on Twitter about and what effect do you think that's going to actually have on the nomination as it's decided at the ballot box? Um. It's a great question. I, I I think that I mean I think that part of what you see is that on is that the 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 commentariat on Twitter is just so snarky and and skeptical that they um you know are kind of skipping past the the first step in 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 candidate evaluation. Um, mm -hmm. I I think that the I think that it's that you know the the. I think that what Weigel describes is is a, a very natural chain of events, right? You find out what someone's what someone's platform is, what someone believes in, um, which is a good thing to try to find out. Because with the exception of you know, I mean, I don't even know. With the, I mean, I, Elizabeth Warren has been very open about her platform. I think there's a lot of questions about just about everybody else when it comes to an actual governing platform. Yep. Um, but you find that stuff out, and then at some point you do have to ask yourself if you believe that this person um, is going to follow through or has any there's going to have any you know problems, background or otherwise that will prevent them from yes being an effective leader. And I think that what you see on Twitter is a lot of people who have skipped past the first part and are and are just going into the going into the sort of vetting mudslinging phase. territory. Yeah, um, they're sort of they're and, sort of vetting them, right? 
I mean, yeah, they're, but they're vetting them. I, mean, I think I feel like they're vetting them because vetting is the only game, right? They're like, no, there's not a there's not a ton of interest, with the exception of maybe Warren and 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 you know Bernie Sanders, who's just announced that he's running. Um, that 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 you know where the platform is sort of so so audible that that you know people seem to have commentary on it. I think more than anything else, it's that you know there there is some you see some critique of the the lack of a platform uh, or or the but but I but I don't. But yeah, I think that it is, it is a sort of vetting, you know, and I think that there's a value in that. I just think that, that um, the most important sort of vetting you could do now is actually like force people to say what they think about things. Yeah. Try to pin them down on the issues, in other words. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's interesting because I think the conversation on Twitter in a way is anticipating one is how the Democrats will attack each other, which is why Gold Notes has not happened yet. We're sort of in the yeah. Kumbaya phase of the primary uh-huh. at this point. The other thing is they're sort of anticipating, of course, how Donald Trump will attack the candidates. So if the media seems more interested in Elizabeth Warren's Native American ancestry controversy, they are they are in a way knowing that Donald Trump is gone has gone there will and will go there, right? That it may not sure. matter to person who shows up in Iowa, but it will matter in the sense that the media will talk about it and Donald Trump will talk about it during the campaign. Um but it is interesting. I mean, I think when I read stuff, when I read political Twitter now, everybody seems incredibly low on Joe Biden all of a sudden. Yeah. Partly because of, out of nowhere. Sure. Yeah. Partly because of Biden's, you know, record from the 90s and how that plays in Democratic politics now, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it seems more like they're judging, prejudging his electability rather than pinning him down on issues or anything like that. And again, I'm not not standing up for Biden in any particular way, just that. It's funny to me that reporters seem very, very down on him. And I don't know if I don't know if what they're trying to say is we don't think Joe Biden can win the Democratic nomination in 2020. We don't like Joe Biden. Uh, we're tired of Joe Biden's weird fan dance about whether he's going to actually run for president, which seems to be yeah. going on and on and on. I don't know. But it, I, th- uh, yeah. I, I do I think mean, that be, conversation uh, is very different from person in Iowa, what they think of Joe Biden at the moment. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, I think there was this sort of uh, presumption. I think there were a lot of people who were sure he was going to run, but there was also, you know, a, a, the point of view that he was frankly too old. And and uh, I think that, that you know, people have just sort of decided whether or not they are interested in someone being part of the process right now. So, yeah. you know, it is, it, there's a lot of, it's a little bit hard to parse, but you're right. And of course, the noise that, the, that we and the media make about these candidates will affect voters, right? It's not the voter is not going to be like, I don't care what you say. I saw him on the stump in uh, Des Moines and he seems like a great guy like that will penetrate voters because it'll penetrate cable news. It'll penetrate everything. And, um, you know, it will become part of the story. Can we do the notebook dump quickly? Because I got a bunch of stuff I want to hit you with. This is where I hit David with a bunch of things uh, he doesn't know about. (laughs) David Aaron Sorkin uh, says a tweet from something called Digital Spy is in conversations to bring back the newsroom. This was, this was the most snarked about media tweet of the week. What do you think? Dead silence. As someone who only ever watched the pilot of the newsroom, am I falling down on my? Am I am I, I going to get fired for admitting then? I don't think um, so. I think you may. I think you may get a raise. I thought it was. Uh, I I thought as with most you know kind of modern Sorkin television product projects, it was it was a show with a lot of potential. Um, that sort of. Uh, didn't seem to add up to the sum of its parts and uh you know who knows maybe there's maybe maybe a maybe a reboot will maybe a reboot will serve it well that said i mean 
it seemed like a show that was just, you know, made to get attention and it did get a lot of attention and that didn't really translate to people watching it. But maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe in a, maybe in the modern digital age, uh, they can find the right audience for it. David, let's play Guess the Celebrity Profile Headline. Are you ready? Wait, by the way, by the, let me jump backward one second. Please. Maybe there's an over-the-top streaming service that just plays to the MSNBC lunchroom. In that case, that would be a, an ideal home for the for the reinvigorated <laughs> newsroom. I was in the supermarket the other day, David. <laughs> I saw a headline. I came okay. to you. All right? You have to guess. I'll give you, give you the broad outlines of the piece. Vanity Fair's soul-bearing interview with Laura Dern. Vanity Fair's soul-bearing interview <laughs> with Laura Dern. Uh, what was I have the to cover what... headline? Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, Think, I'll give you a little hint. Think of a recent project Laura Dern has been involved in on television and just subtly tweak the title of the project. Oh, my gosh. Um, All right, you give up? Yeah, you got to tell me. Laura Dern's Big Little Truce. <laughs> oh, no, that's terrible. Laura Dern's Big Little Truce. It's also a oh uh, Vanity Fair piece uh, profile headlined, It's Good to Be Regina King. Um, <laughs> celebrity, that's your... I guarantee it's not the first time that someone's written that headline about her. And, and by all means, keep writing it. That's good. I was very depressed uh, to see a note about the Alliance of American Football, which we've all kind of enjoyed as fun spring programming to say, oh, yeah, we're not a football league. We're a data business. That's that's the moment I'm out. Right. I just don't know. I wanted a, I wanted a football league. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you bring a data business into this? Jesus. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I love there was a piece in the New York Times, you know, where they do these things where they write about their own writers about. David Marchesi, who was over at New York Magazine, now is doing yeah. the um, interview thing for the Times Magazine. It's an interview with him. Uh, the Twitter headline, at least, was how a celebrity interviewer creates rapport with his big name subjects. The interview in what could only be a meta exercise did not succeed in extracting or even really asking of Marchesi about how he gets material out of his subjects. So you <laughs> sat down with a master interviewer, right? Yeah. But you didn't ask how he does his master interviews. You just never got to it. Was that, was, that a, was, that, was that just like some something I'm not understanding? Right? Is that is that some? Is there a wink there that I'm I'm not getting? Right? Surely that was it is the, very strange. I mean, you almost you, you kind of wouldn't you rather see Marchese just interview himself? Just some to do some yeah. sort of like dialectical or something? There is how I would extract me. Right? I read this yeah. and I would I would probe on the yeah. I think I think that's a better way to go. Next time, let's we do are that. sort of in a golden age for the uh, for for the uh, the interviewer, right? I mean, this is mm-hmm. like the, the Isaac Chotner. Yeah, I mean, I think right before in the in the months leading up to him moving to the Times, Marchese just had taken on this outsized personality, or not in personality, like he was he was chasing it down. But every time one of his interviews popped up online, everybody was just like. Just you know, tweeting it, retweeting it with exclamation parts and heart emojis. I mean, it was it's it's a it's it's quite a time we're living in. I think he's. I think what part of that is. I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but part of it is that he's discovered, or or we've collectively as a society have discovered that there are certain subjects that you want an interview form more than anything else. Yes, like Meg Ryan this week. Mm-hmm. Do you want the giant thirty five hundred word profile of Meg Ryan? No. Uh, in Vanity Fair titled Big Little Truths. I mean, maybe. 
for the right writer, but really you kind of want the interview, right? Quincy Jones, which was one of his famous ones mm-hmm. uh, recently. Like in a way, I think there's like every every subject has the sort of ideal piece and he's been really good at finding subjects for whom the interview, at least at this moment in history, is the ideal piece. And in our podcast, Obsessed Culture, this is sort of like the slow food version of that, right? It's, it's <laughs> We're still back in the printed word, yeah. actually like, you know, being precise about things. All right, David, that's the Press Box this week. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Producer is Jim Cunningham. Research by Chris Almeida. Back next week with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, man. supermarket the other day, David. What do you make of that? Dead silence. What do you think? Dead silence. This is just embarrassing. Dead silence, etc., etc. So the first and most obvious lesson here, I think, is this is bullshit. Dead silence. Something I'm not understanding, right? Is that is that some is there a wink there that I'm I'm not getting? Dead silence. Okay, maybe I went deaf. Okay, let's say you are the hypothetical David Shoemaker-like person. Dead Get si- her done. Clean up your remote control clutter with Control Center by Kavo. Plug in your streamer, sound system, cable, satellite, or game console and control everything connected to your TV with one easy-to-use voice-controlled remote. Shop now and get 40% off Control Center with promo code PRESSBOX. That's $59.95. 40% off the regular pricing of $99.95. Service plan required. First 45 days free. Control Center is available at caavo.com and Best Buy. Control Center by Cavo. One remote that does it all.